0: All right, Trinity Church, how you doing this morning? It is good to see you. I get, I am in rhythms, right? I'm a rhythm person like you are too. And my rhythm is I don't come up on this stage till after we're into the service a bit. This is the second time I have forgotten to come up and just tell you who is here as our guest leader. But if you were with us on our Christmas Eve services, You know Jason Schaefer, and we are so grateful to have him leading uh, with us, with our teams this weekend, this Sunday, and grateful for just the way that God's gifted him. He's a pro. He knows when Todd doesn't show up, I'm just going to start. So that's exactly what he did, and you didn't know any different. But I want to make sure you get a chance to thank him today between services, if you get a chance to come up and say hello. It is great to be with you today. I missed you last week, and what I want to do before we kick off anything, let's take a minute and pray for what's going on in our world today. Father, we come before you as a people who, from afar, thousands of miles away, have great concern and yet great confidence in who you are, in a people who have just been moved upon in a strong military presence this week. We pray for the people of Ukraine. We pray, God, for their safety. We pray for their military. We pray for civilians. But, God, who I want to pray for today the most is their church. I want to pray that your church, God, would rise up in Ukraine. I pray that your people would demonstrate a confidence in you when the rest of their world is falling apart. And I want to pray that you would use them as your hands, as your feet. In the lives of people who are terrified, the lives of people whose lives are getting turned upside down, would you be the source of strength and hope in a world of chaos, in a world of war? And so we pray that you would be on the move, we pray that your spirit would be strong, and we pray that your church, Father God, would pray because the battle is yours every time. There is so much going on in a spiritual realm we can't see with our eyes that's way beyond tanks, way beyond fighter planes. And so we just pray your work, your spirit, would go before your church and work in mighty ways. We love you and we lift these folks up to you today, our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, um, we continue in a series that you're going to find some interesting parallels to how we've even prayed about a group of people who are very afraid of what was about to happen. Jesus's 11 disciples at this point wondering what he means when he keeps saying he's leaving them. And telling them that they actually, as we look in the text today, he's foretelling that they're going to abandon him in his greatest hour of need. Talk about anxiety. Talk about fear. Talk about confusion. And so we'll get into their sandals today. If you have a Bible, if you want to make your way to John chapter 16, John 16 is where we're going to be. And if you have notes, they were in the back, or if you wanna pull up our app and you can track with us that way, we wanna do that. But we're gonna see today these words that Jesus gives of reminders of not just who he is, but how he cares, how he meets us in these great places Of our need. And one thing I loved, it was a couple weeks ago, Eric Tonis was with us and he alluded to something that cracked me up. I was in the back. I don't listen to the radio very much, but whenever you do, and especially the radio advertisement is some kind of pharmaceutical drug, at the very end, they're talking at about 300 times the rate of speed about how this drug hopefully won't kill you if you take it. And you're like, that's fair warning, right? You have no idea what they said. I loved when he alluded to that because I sat there and thought, that's so true. I got the word out there. I hope you can play that backwards really slow and remind yourselves this thing could be harmful to your health. Well, what we said is that the Bible doesn't have that kind of language. It doesn't have fine print, unless your eyes are bad and the whole thing's fine print. But what it does have is truth. And Jesus foretelling us, we'll see it today, in this world you will have trouble. And the great news is, as we'll see today, he's overcome the world appreciate Bill last week talking, preaching through the first part of chapter 16 of John's gospel. And today we pick it up. And so much was shared last week about this again, this role of the Holy Spirit. We talked about where the Bible speaks much to the the active role, the presence and the power, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And though we wouldn't want to make a theology of the Holy Spirit only from the gospel of John, yet these chapters 13 through 17 provide so much about what the role of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. And I hope that last week you were tracking with this idea, this big picture thing that Bill talked about is that the Holy Spirit is going to give us the ability to testify, to speak on his behalf of who he is to those who don't yet believe. And we talk about at Trinity Church all the time that there is a world of people around you who don't yet put their faith in Christ. The interesting thing is you actually are relationally connected to a few of them. And God wants to use us strategically and supernaturally in that relational world. And those are the people that God has placed in your life on purpose so you can be that that testimony, as it were, like Bill talked about last week. Let's pick it up. We're in John 16, verse 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, so they're kind of like murmuring over here, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. So here's Jesus, and we're just furthering the conversation Where so much last week was on the role and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the believers' lives. We're just continuing in that conversation. And Jesus is going to use language. As we read it even sometimes, you're like, man, they're using that phrase in a little while, a whole lot. And and he's telling them things that are, again, just kind of blowing their minds. And and the reality is we have to get back into their sandals. We read this 2,000 years later in our comfortable chairs. We weren't hearing it in real time. In real time, the rabbi, the Messiah that they have been following for the last three years is telling them, you're gonna go it alone. You're full of despair. That's not just bad news. You're completely befuddled. What do you mean? Why would you leave us now? Jesus, you've been telling us all through John's gospel, it's not your hour. Now that you finally say it is, you're leaving Your hour was, that's when we storm the gates. That's when we take back Jerusalem from Rome. That's when you establish us on 12 chairs. (laughs) We're ready for the kingdom. And now you're leaving. So they're completely confused as to what this language is. And it sounds a little bit like Jesus is gonna play hide and seek. You're not, in a little while, you're not gonna see me anymore. And then a little while longer, now I'm gonna appear. And they're just like, so Jesus, just be plain. And what does this mean? How does this relate to going back to the Father? What does that have to do with any of this? So, if you were to put yourself in their sandals, you would realize yeah, I think I would be as or more, not just confused, but in despair over what the implications of this were. What is this all about? What does this mean? Jesus kind of takes this route, then he says, I-, I can tell what you're asking about. I can tell what you're talking about. Let me, let me-, let me give it a little bit of a- an illustration. Let me tell you what it's going to be like. And he goes on to use this interesting language about giving birth. And he talks about the incredible pain that will be relieved By joy. In your notes, write that down. As it is in childbirth, so it is in this situation, great joy replaces great pain. As it is, Jesus is going to use this illustration to say, What we're about to enter into is going to be incredibly painful, but on the other side of it, I'm promising you joy. It's going to be there. And these two things, they don't look like they go together, but they absolutely do. And he uses this illustration of childbirth. Now, I just know for me, I feel incredibly adequate any time I talk about childbirth. I know all about it. Ladies are getting angry right now in the room. No, I, I don't have a clue. But I will tell you this. I was present for four children being brought into this world. And it gives me the highest esteem in the world for my wife and all that she went through in giving birth each of these times. And I think about that illustration of childbirth being especially on her mind today. 22 years ago today, Aaliyah came into the world. It's her birthday today. And so Joanna's gonna be thinking, and the interesting thing is, Joanna's gonna be thinking about what the last 22 years have been like. Not what that labor and delivery room were like. That is like... Do not bring those memories back, but I wanna think about all these things about my daughter that I absolutely love and have benefited from and I'm so grateful for who she is. That's who she's gonna be thinking about today, now 22 years later. I remember though that being in this environment, watching my wife give birth to our kids, I remember, and Jesus uses this interesting word, he doesn't just say it's gonna be painful, he uses the word anguish anguish is a different word painful is painful with the thought of it's going to be over anguish is i'm not sure it's going to be over this is so intense and it's taking so long when will this end And I'll never forget, and Joanna and I were talking this week, I can't remember which of our kids, and Joanna was in a state of mind, she won't even remember that this happened. So you're going to have to take my word for it. If you see her today, and you go, did that really happen? She's like, I don't know. But I was there, and I do remember this happening, So we're at, we're at this moment. She's in labor. She's been pushing, in this case, for literally not just minutes, hours at this point. And at one point, she looks over at me and she says, Todd, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> this child isn't going to come out of me. It's not going to happen. And I just want to say, thank you, Jesus, for saving my marriage. Because of the logic, that didn't come out of my mouth. <laughs> A woman in labor going through these deep stages, this anguish of childbirth, my logical side did not speak up. Well, babe, that just has to happen. That ain't, that ain't going to stay there. You got to do, you know, nut. none of that comes out. Babe, you can do it. And that's all I could say. And that would have come back to haunt me all kinds of bad had I been logical in that moment, right? So she was experiencing anguish. I don't know if this is going to get better. I don't know if we're going to get past this. And she would say, like every mother in the room, all worth it. So grateful for who this daughter is that God put into my hands moments later. So Jesus is using this language. We see in other places of scripture that the Bible uses the concept of childbirth to kind of bring these same images to us. In a really fascinating place, you'll see this up on the screen, from Isaiah chapter 26, the words that Isaiah is communicating, Isaiah 26 is a powerful chapter, and if you know much about the structure of the book, it goes really dark, the very beginning of the book, lots of judgment, little hope, until you get to really the second half, but at this point, chapter 26, is this amazing glimmer of hope, and look at the way, it couches in this concept of childbirth. Chapter 26, verse 16, Lord, they, referring to Judah, came to you in their distress. When you disciplined them, they could barely whisper a prayer. Man, the imagery of that word choice is powerful. As a pregnant woman about to give birth, writhes and cries out in pain, so so were we in your presence, Lord. This deep sense of just anguish. But watch this. We were with child, we writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. All the anguish, none of the joy. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life. Catch that. The role, the mission, the, the expectation of God's people was to bring life to the world, but they just gave birth to wind. It didn't have any of that effect. Verse 19, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Wow, there's all kinds of thickness within Isaiah, giving hope but in the midst of lament. Paul will use the same concept of childbirth, talking about really the entire order, all of creation in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, not only creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the spirit, meaning we who belong to God have the indwelling spirit within us, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly in a sense for our new rebirth, for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So Jesus is now saying that this great pain, this great anguish you're gonna go through is gonna be eclipsed with joy. And what we're seeing now, as we're seeing this conversation, we're seeing some things put in real time. Jesus is alluding to, you're going to see me hanging from a Roman cross. That's the depth of anguish. That's the sense, the pain of childbirth. But only three days later, Resurrection Sunday on Easter, you're going to see me again, and then your joy will be full. So Jesus is giving them frames to understand what's about to happen, and when we read it, we get that. Jesus shifts gears a bit, and then talks about in that day. In that day, they will not ask Jesus anything but we'll ask the Father directly in Jesus' name. That word ask is used a couple different ways. When we're talking about Jesus, we won't, Jesus says, You won't ask me, kind of the idea of asking me for instruction, asking me for truth or insight. But then it uses the word otherwise when you'll ask the Father and He will give to you. So think of it in two different ways. You won't ask me like you might an instructor, a professor, or a teacher for clarity about a subject. Give me truth and understanding about this. That's how Jesus is referring to the word in one sense, but then he swings over and says, but you will ask the Father and he will give to you as though reaching out to a parent for a resource, for a need that you have and having them fill it. So two different ways he's using this word, ask and receive, as Jesus goes on to mention that there's something about his disciples asking and receiving that will make their joy complete. Let's ask that question, how is that? How is that? What, how does making a need known and seeing it met complete someone's joy? How does making a need known and seeing that need met complete someone's joy? And I'm just gonna say this. If you're asking that question today, it's because you've never come to the throne of God begging that he intercede, begging that he show up, begging that he work on on your behalf of what you're asking him for, and seeing him do it and be completely blown away And indeed, filled with joy. Watch, not so much that you, quote, got what you wanted, but that you called out to a heavenly Father who knew your needs and provided for you. There was a deep sense of joy welling up in you. And Jesus says, Your joy is complete. When you ask and you see the Father provide for you, He shows up strong and powerful. We've said throughout this part of John that Jesus is dropping kind of seeds of thoughts only to come back and cultivate them later. He's just kind of putting out all kinds of different strains for them to consider, often confusing, but will come back later on and provide more truth. Carson pulls these thoughts together masterfully. Look at what he says. Now in anticipation of that new order, the disciples are exhorted, ask, and you will receive They are to do this in full recognition that this is the route to the joy that Jesus had promised them, had earlier promised them. And we remember seeing that back in chapter 14 and 15. If that joy is part of the matrix of consistent obedience, that obedience, that remaining in Jesus and his love and in his word is the matrix, excuse me, is the matrix out of which fruit bearing springs The fruit bearing, that is the direct consequence of prayer. So all these themes that were mentioned a chapter ago in chapter 15, thus the connections amongst asking, receiving, and complete joy in 1624 turn out to be a compressed version of the themes developed in chapter 15 but now more clearly set within the eschatological situation, meaning Jesus talking about what's happening now and next, introduced by Jesus's death and resurrection. So Jesus has moved from the world of theory and he's laying it into the sequence of how this is going to actually happen in real time. I am going to go to the cross. You're going to be in the deep pains of childbirth. I am going to rise from the dead. You're going to have a joy that will be eclipsed by nothing else. And when you continue to ask the father in my name and see him provide for you, you will have a joy like nothing else. So He's given us some ideas, some strands. Now in chapter 16, he's beginning to pull it together and in light of specifically his death and resurrection. Let's continue on. Chapter 16, verse 25. Jesus speaking, though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father." Then Jesus' disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So where we broke it off, Jesus is just continuing his train of thought about the idea of asking and receiving. And as he's continuing this idea, he wants the disciples to understand that as they approach the Father, they can do so. You know, through if you've been with us in John's gospel, Jesus is constantly talking about who the father is, his relationship to the father. And in the middle of all that, there has seemed to be, as they're following Jesus, Jesus is following the father, there seems to be someone in the way. How, how do we get to the father ourselves? Jesus is making this clear. I'm not gonna be in the way when you, you pursue and, and reach out to the father, you can do that directly. And look look at how Carson says it. He says, Jesus wants his followers to understand that the phrase in my name does not mean that they are thereby distanced from God, distanced from the Father. It does not mean that they are restricted to asking Jesus for things and he conveys their request to the Father. It does not mean in Jesus's words that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So both these things, that's not true. What is true, far from it the father himself loves you and needs no prompting from the son. I just think that had to be so powerful for the disciples to hear is that the kind of relationship that Jesus has to the father is the kind of relationship they can have too. They can come to him in humility. They can come to him in love. They can come to him with their requests and bring them directly to Jesus' father, to their father. So all kinds of that stuff must have been so affirming to them as they're hearing him walk it out. But the next part to me is incredibly confusing. They're like, Jesus, finally, finally you're talking without figurative speech. Finally, you're talking plainly. We get it. They make the strangest affirmation Verse 30, now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. What? Now? I've been with you for three years. You have seen me do things that there's no other explanation for aside from the supernatural. You've heard me teach in all kinds of environments and been consistently true and authentic all the way through. You have seen me love you and model for you, the Father. And now, hours before I'm about to be arrested, now you believe? And if you hear sarcasm in my tone, it's only because I read sarcasm in Jesus's. That's not my interpretation. Now you believe? Jesus is just, I think, somewhat dumbfounded like all of our time together. And it's taken up till now for you to finally connect the dots, to have this kind of confidence and who I say I am and who I've been saying I am these last three years. And I would say this, I think the only thing that must have been more discouraging to Jesus than hearing this very late confession of their faith was what he knew and what they didn't. You see, in that moment, he's going to share, it's not just that Judas has agreed to betray me, it's not just Peter that you're gonna say, you don't even know who I am three times tonight. But it's the fact that every single one of you will run in the time when I need you the most. It's not the late confession of faith, it's the simple reality that they will desert him. They will run And I think that part, to me, is so incredibly powerful. So incredibly powerful that in the midst of this great tension in the conversation, Jesus has clarity. Even to say, now you say you believe, but just in hours from now, you'll run like you don't. But he has this intense ability to continue to be reminded that his strength, his confidence never came from his followers, it's always come from the Father. I will not be alone. I will not be left alone, though you will leave me. Simple question for you, have you ever dealt with that? Have you ever dealt with people that you expected or even volitionally said, would you be here for me, but who failed you, who ran away? Never to the degree Jesus did, but probably in our own ways we have. I remember a year and a half ago when things were probably at close to one of their bottoms for me. And I remember reaching out to some people that I trusted that were ministry mentors. And I remember asking them, I just don't know how to navigate, I've never been here before. And I remember one of my friends told me, he's like, Todd, I'm going through a lot myself. Just the fact that he would take my call in the midst of everything he was going through was incredibly gracious. And he told me, this is what I've done. I decided in this season of a lot of attack and criticism that I'm gonna get five people around me. I'm gonna get five people around me who are not on my board, so that's not a a weird triangulated relationship. Five people who love me, who I know are for me, I'm gonna get them around me and just say, can you just be there for me in this next season? I thought, man, that's good advice. So I did exactly that. I reached out to five men, none of whom were on our board, to not create kind of a weird triangle relationship. And I remember meeting with them <clears throat> in an afternoon, just kind of walking through what had happened, walking through the difficulties of where I was and what I was trying to figure out, and just really asked them, could you just be there for me, be a source of encouragement and strength on this next part of the journey? It would only be a few weeks later that three of those five completely walked away from me. Made me kind of wonder, I wish I never would have reached out, then have that almost add salt to the wound. I wonder if you've ever had that happen before people that you counted on, people that you asked, please be here with me, who walk away when you need them the most. But can I say this? That's where me and Jesus then move apart. And what I mean by that is, I might have experienced that kind of abandonment, but I have been on the other side of the coin too. Where when people needed me at their greatest hour, I was vacant, I wasn't present, and I wasn't there. And the reality is, is that for as many times as I've been failed, even more I've failed others. That's what Jesus didn't experience. Jesus knew what it was like to be failed, but Jesus had never failed anyone else. And so my comparison with him drops off real fast. But I want you to see, I want you to be mindful, again, what we've been seeing all throughout this passage as to what Jesus has done. Remember that we said how profound it was that Jesus washed the feet of the one who was going to betray him just hours later. And he didn't skip Peter when he came to the one who was gonna act like he didn't even know who he was three times that very night. But I want you to catch today, he also didn't skip the other 10. The other 10 whose very feet would run in haste the minute that things got tense. Look in your notes. Jesus washed the feet of the remaining 10 whose very same feet he predicted would run in haste to abandon him at his greatest hour of need. This is love. This is a kind of love that I don't understand and a kind of love that I need to know more and more in my life. So what do we do? We are called to love in like manner. We're called to be those who even though others might fail us, we are mindful we fail others. And in the midst of that, we get down and we wash their feet. We serve them, we forgive them, and we love them as Jesus loved his own. Jesus is meant to be an example in this way to us, to not be a people who just connect with that kind of loss, but a people who connect with his kind of love. And that, to me, is so profound. The greatest reason why Jesus could keep going had nothing to do with if people supported him or not. It had everything to do if the Father did. And that's why he said, you will leave me alone, but I won't be alone. The Father's gonna be there in every step of the way. It's true for Jesus, it's true for you. Psalm 46, verse one, God is our refuge and strength. Watch, an ever-present help in trouble. Ever-present, always there. Therefore, we will not fear, that's the result though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging we don't lose heart because he says he's never going to leave us never going to forsake us an ever present help in times of trouble finally today our last verse John 16:33 Jesus speaking i've told you these things so that in me watch In me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world." Jesus is kind of bringing, this is the end of chapter 16, and next week when he into 17, it's gonna be a break in the action. It's gonna go a different way. So see, literally this last verse is kind of a bow bringing together the conversation from chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16. This is the summary words. This is where it all comes together. And he says, I'm telling you these things in advance so that you would find in me peace. What did he say in chapter 15? When we remain, when we abide in him, we will have this kind of, of deep sense of peace, of joy, of, an, of confidence knowing he's there, of knowing he's with us, knowing that he won't leave. So he's exhorted them in the same conversation to do that. It's not the things that he's told them will provide him, them peace. It's in him, in the person of Jesus and all that they have known to be true of him and with the indwelling spirit he's promised to come and walk with them, that's how they'll know peace. And as we've said so many times, the Bible doesn't read with this really fast language at the end, hoping you don't hear the fact that it's gonna be rough. The last three messages you have heard Jesus warning his disciples, it's going to be hard. There'll be times of persecution. There'll be times of great challenge and trial. It will feel like childbirth. You will have trouble. That Greek word trouble is really fascinating to me. It's also defined as tribulation, but watch, internal internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted, watch, without options. Oh baby, you've been there before. It's outward circumstances that are affecting you, but on the inside, you have this growing sense of just deep conflict, deep anxiety, deep fear, tribulation from the inside, watch. Jesus says, that even though that kind of trouble will come, that they can take heart, take heart. Watch the definition of this word. Literally means to be bolstered from within. Bolstered from within which supports unflinching courage to radiate warm confidence. Oh man, I love that definition. To radiate warm confidence. So in the midst of promise that trouble is going to be present, you, can radiate with warm confidence. We've said it before, Jesus never calls you just to be an optimistic person. You know, just, it's all gonna work out. Just think happy thoughts. He's never called you to that. Because he says, take heart, have this deep, warm confidence, why? Because I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Now think in the disciples' minds of what they're gonna see in the next 60 hours. They're gonna see their leader, their rabbi, their Messiah, hanging on a Roman cross, declared dead, body taken down, and put presumably in a tomb forever. That does not look like overcome. That looks like being overcome. By the Jewish religious leaders, by Rome, and by Satan himself. Overcoming an obstacle never looked like this before. But listen to what Jesus said He said, I've Niked the world. That world for overcome is the verbal form of the kind of shoe that some of you are wearing today. Nike simply means the word victory. It's a really great name for a shoe company. So Jesus says, I've overcome, I've battled, I'm victorious. It uses the verbal form of this noun. I've overcome the world. And listen to that definition, to conquer, to overcome, to carry off the victory, watch. The verb implies a battle, taking the spoils of war. Jesus says, that world order that Eric was talking about a couple years ago, I have taken, I've overcome, I've taken the spoils of war, I'm victorious. And it would be Paul in one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, uses the exact same word. Every time it comes up, the word victory, it's the same Greek word. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in nike in victory where o oh death is your victory where o oh death is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god why he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yea, God. Yea, God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today as a group of people who simply want to say, knowing what we know on this side of the story 2,000 years later, everything you told your disciples was true. Everything that they needed to know that would go out of their minds but come back in only three days later. Everything was a part of your plan, a part of your strategy, a part of your mission. And thank you that you don't hide difficult truth from us. Thank you that when you tell us that we will have trouble, you're honest, but more importantly, thank you that you've overcome the world. Thank you that we can take heart. Thank you that we can radiate warm confidence because we know who has won and we know in whom our hope is. Father, in confusing and difficult, frustrating times, thank you that you've not left us to ourselves. We're so grateful for that. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. You received a communion set of elements on your way in today. Those of you joining us online, if that turns out to be a tortilla and punch, you're welcome to engage with us. And I thought about what a beautiful way to respond to the end of this message. Take heart, then this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame the world at the cross. This whole idea of communion, we get from this conversation he's just had a little bit before, this upper room. When he took the bread, when he took the wine, he said not only what they meant, but he made a new covenant. So today, we celebrate Jesus's victory through what to us seems like the oddest of mechanisms, victory through death. But not a death that stayed dead, but a death that conquered sin, conquered death itself rose from the dead and gave us the way that we might have life eternal as well. And I would just say, if you're here today and you just are thinking, Todd, what a fairy tale. That's the craziest story I've ever heard. If you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, can I tell you, I have no idea what you're waiting for. He has laid it out. Not just things to know in your head, transformation of your life. When you come to him by A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Recognizing God, there's a problem in the relationship and it's on me. Be believe. Believe that what Jesus did at that cross did overcome the world and he did it all for you. Like our series says, out of love for you. See is Choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I'm going to put my confidence in what you've done, not in how I can be religious for you. I'm simply going to trust what you've done and live my life following your example. You can make that decision before we ever open these up. And I'd say if you haven't made that decision yet, this really doesn't make sense. You're honoring something that you're saying and your expression, your lifestyle doesn't really mean much to you. Man, please, please let it go by today. But if you're here and you have put your confidence in Jesus, would you peel back the top, exposing the wafer? Jesus said in this upper room conversation this bread it represents my body broken for you. Take and eat. Let's receive it today. And then peeling back the top of the cup. Jesus took the juice around the table and he did something only God can do. Only God makes covenants. And Jesus said, a new covenant I make to you today through the shedding of my blood. Receive it. Let's take and drink. Jesus, we are so grateful for your life, so grateful for your love, so grateful for the way you obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. We're astounded, and we take time today to remember. We take time to remind ourselves of your goodness over us, and we simply say, Jesus, let your will be done in us. Have your way in us today, this week. Let us be a people who live out your life. We love you. We're so grateful for your sacrifice in our place. We pray in your wonderful name. Amen.